Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, where we discuss the ideas, people, and events that have made America what it is today. We believe that by understanding our history and our principles, we can better live up to the promise of the American founding and preserve our ongoing experiment in self-government. Welcome to The American Idea. I want to welcome everyone to this episode of The American Idea. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic of a real contemporary significance and relevance for parents, for grandparents, for schools, for policymakers, but probably a controversy that I think our guests will show us has deep roots way back into perhaps the very principles that inform the founding of our country. Uh, today, we're going to be having a conversation about childhood schooling and what kids should or shouldn't be reading in schools. And for that to be joined in that conversation today, I'm joined by Rita Koganzen, who is professor in, in the Department of Political Science at the University of Houston. Uh, Rita spent a number of years at the very fine program on constitutionalism and democracy at the University of Virginia uh, with my old friend Jim Caesar. She received her undergraduate degree from the University of Chicago and her master's and PhD from Harvard University. She's the author of a number of books and articles, uh, really fine books, studies in political thought, like uh, Liberal States, Authoritarian Families, Childhood and Education in the Early Modern Political Thought. Uh, that was put out, I think, by Oxford in 2021. So a pretty recent book, and she's written a number of really terrific articles, including one uh, in American Political Thought called There Is No Such Thing as a Banned Book. Censorship, Authority, and the School Book Controversies of the 1970s. Uh, Rita, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on The American Idea. Thanks for inviting me. Um, maybe to start with this question. Obviously, there are massive controversies today about what kids in schools are reading or being taught. Um, if I understand your article, which is terrific, no such thing as a banned book. We can trace these controversies to at least the 1970s in America, and perhaps farther back than that. What's the article argument you make in your article about the school curriculum and school book controversies? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the thing that I focus on in this article in particular is this question of so-called book banning, um, which, uh, you know, involves parents or school boards um, taking issue with books that are either in the curriculum of a public school, I mean, this is only in public schools, um, <laughs> or in the, the library of a public school, and asking for those books to be removed. Um, and that's come to be known as book banning or book censorship. And my sort of question going into this art into this article was why we call this book banning, uh, or why we call it censorship. I mean, that's kind of, I think, that accusation has really stuck. Um, and is sort of used by everybody now. <clears throat> but it's like in very important ways, quite different from the forms of book banning and book censorship um, that sort of we we, we call, are called to mind when we use those words, right? So you did a, a podcast recently with Flag Taylor um, on Soviet dissidents and censorship in the Soviet Union. And I think that's the kind of 
censorship that comes to mind when people use the word censorship, right? Like that the state is literally burning the books, right? Or pulling them off the shelves or preventing them from being circulated. Um, and that they have to be circulated in secret, like in Samizdat and things like that. Um, and that's not really what school book banning in America looks like at all. Um, you know, it's like one school in one place decides we're not going to shelve these books. And, you know, they remain available at the bookstore. You can buy them on Amazon. You know, there's no, the the state, uh, I mean, the public school is a kind of agency of the state, but we would say like the state government, the federal government, nobody else is getting involved in this kind of thing. So the book is widely available uh, and yet it's banned, you know, in the sense that it becomes sort of unavailable, sometimes just temporarily unavailable uh, in the school. And so my question was sort of why it has this kind of, uh, sensationalist rhetoric when really it's something very different from the practice of the Soviet government or the Nazi government or something like that. Um, and I think the origins of that are in the 1970s, where we start to get these particular kinds of controversies. I mean, you can look back in the 1970s and you see these controversies. They're exactly like what is going on today uh, in like Loudoun County, Virginia, in Texas, in Florida, like they take exactly the same form. Um, if you want to look back further, I think there's a deeper question that's involved in these controversies, which I think is part of what has led them to be called censorship. And we should sort of think about like, who's in whose interest is it to call this kind of stuff censorship or banning? Um, and that, that controversy or that conflict is who has the authority to decide how children are educated in the United States? Um, and in our system of education, again, this is only speaking of public schooling, you know, we have an extremely decentralized school system, especially compared to, you know, Western Europe or East Asia, other OECD countries. We have local control of schools uh, and we have kind of competing interests. So on the one hand, we have the interests of professional educators, the teachers and the administrators and what their view of good teaching or a good education is. And then on the other hand, we have the community as it's represented by the school board, um, which is an electoral body, um, an elected body. And then we have the individual parents of individual children. And the way that we have set up our school system, these are like kind of in a permanent tension with one another, duking it out over who gets to decide what goes in the school curriculum. And the book censorship contests are one kind of manifestation or eruption of that contest. Um, but there are a million others. I mean, many controversies that we see over schooling are versions of this conflict of authority. And that goes back quite a long time, um, probably to the 19th century, to the beginning of sort of compulsory schooling. So I, I was struck by the one argument, uh, really an interesting argument in your article, which is when you people use this book banning or censorship, those terms, as you say, those are... Um, they have they're they're laden morally laden terms right that it you know nobody thinks censorship is a good word um it implies though that children have some right to read the book you know so if we think censorship is banning a book that i as an adult have a right to read then it's a sort of violation of my right um your argument goes into some uh, detail about this notion that children have a right to read books in their school library. Yeah, well, so that becomes kind of the rhetorical dilemma of, of these educators associations like the American Library Association um, or the National Council of Teachers of English, which are the ones who are sort of promoting this framework of thinking about 
book removal as banning or censorship, which is that, you know, if it's the case that some, something is being censored, well, who's being censored? Is it the author that's being censored? In a sense, it can't be the author that's being censored because we're not pulling his books off of, you know, bookstore shelves. We're not stopping the commercial publication of these books. So it has to be somebody else's right. It's not really the author. The author doesn't have a right to be shelved in a school, right? Or in any particular school. So we say, well, it's the, the child's right. That's sort of the, the strategy of the ALA and NCT and these other organizations. We're going to say that what's happening here is that we're violating the student's right to read by removing these books from the school library or from the school curriculum. And that's a very contested idea. Do students, in fact, have a First Amendment right to read, right? So there had been an earlier kind of wave of censorship of communist literature in the 1930s during the Red Scare, um, in which public libraries were removing communist material from the shelves. And they often lost those cases in court because the adults could claim a First Amendment right to have access to information, right? That I have a First Amendment speech right. But children don't really have that kind of right. Uh, and in the 1960s, it's sort of the beginning of a series of cases that do start to expand children's First Amendment rights at the level of uh, the Supreme Court. Um, so like Tinker v. Des Moines is a really famous one in 1969, I think, uh, which says, you know, the children's First Amendment rights don't end at the schoolhouse gate. And the case had to do with kids who are wearing black armbands to protest the Vietnam War. Um, and the school tried to censure them and they sued and they were their position was upheld by the court, arguing, yes, you have a right to wear clothes or make a statement of your beliefs at school, uh, and the school cannot infringe on your right to speak uh, inside the school in this way. So reading is different because reading is like receiving information. It's not like the direct speech of students. So it's a, it's a strange argument to make that children have a right to read books, like which books? right? Any books? Um, well, it's always adults who are the ones who are giving them the books, right? One way or the other. And that's the sort of slate of hand that I argue went into making this book banning controversy, right? Which is that what was really happening in a certain sense, what's always really happening is somebody selects the books for a curriculum. Somebody selects the books for the school library. That person is an adult, right? It's the teachers, it's the administrators, it's the librarians. They're the ones who make the selections in the first place. No school classroom or library has every book in the world. Um, and there are many books that just obviously would not be selected for a school, right? So, I mean, you would never select like a rotary phone repair manual to put into a high school library or a middle school library. Like what would it be doing there, right? Right. The, uh, a lot of high school students would be even more bored by that. <laughs> right. So, I mean, it's totally uncontroversial to say, obviously many books will never make it into a school library because they're simply inappropriate material for a school, right? Now, inappropriate doesn't always mean controversial. It could just mean like pointless, right? Irrelevant, um, outdated, whatever. There's a million ways in which a book could be inappropriate for a school. Um, but one of the ways is that it could be too controversial, like it could be too sexualized, right? It could, in, you know, ha portray lifestyles that people think are immoral or something like that. So where do you draw the line? Well, the line gets drawn at some point in the process of selection, right? A librarian says, yes, this book, no to this book. And we don't have any problem with that. Like we're not, you know, the New York Times is not running headlines about which books librarians are selecting to shelve in, in school libraries. The problem only arises when parents or community, community members find the books and find them offensive, right? And think this book should not be here, it should be removed. And so the difficulty is when you say that a, a child has a right to read, 
Well, we're violating that right all the time by just having a selection committee for a library or even just a librarian who does the selection, right? This librarian is just like right and left violating your right to read by not selecting the rotary phone repair manual. Uh, and so that's not really controversial. So there's something kind of artificial about this idea of a right to read. It only gets invoked when a book is removed that had been shelved, right? Although we've never investigated why that book was shelved in the first place. So the, the issue is that when it comes to children, like they are not selecting their own reading material for the most part until quite late in childhood. And maybe even then, I mean, a lot of students simply don't care. They're not like in search of books. They just will read whatever sort of in front of them if they have to read it. Uh, and so there's always one adult or another that is exercising their authority over the selection of books that children are gonna read. And the question is just, which adult kind of has the final say? Right. Is it the librarian? Is what the librarian selects the final say in what a child should be exposed to in the school district? Or do parents or school boards have some kind of veto power over that where they can make a claim that they're the more <clears throat> democratic or legitimate representatives of what the community wants and they don't want this book? <laughs> Uh, and so this contest is really like much more even than it appears when you use the, the rhetoric of censorship. But that's ultimately sort of what's uh, going yeah. on is that the right to read is a kind of falsification of what's really happening in the process of selecting books for. So students. has the Supreme Court embraced this idea that children have a right to read? Um, so there is one case that has made it to the Supreme Court in 1982, this case called Pico v. Island Trees. Uh, Island Trees is a school district in Long Island. Um, and it's the only case so far. So, uh, and it's it's very murky. Um, so there's no majority. There's kind of plurality, plurality decision, um, and it sort of embraces this idea in the sense that it follows previous federal court precedents, of which there were two cases that said something like, once the book is shelved, uh, it kind of retains. It, it sort of acquires a right to remain. And that you can't use moral or political reasons to remove those books. Uh, if a school board says, you know, these books are immoral or these books are obscene and filthy, like this is the kind of language that school boards will use to take books off the shelves. Those are not legitimate reasons. Those are kind of partial reasons for, for book removal. And so you can't remove a book on those grounds. And it's sort of the Pico case sort of endorses something like a right to receive information. Um, but it's so tenuous and impossible to uphold that it immediately, I mean, right after 1982, there's like this huge like uptick in book banning, right? Rather than ending this controversy, which had been sort of simmering in the 1970s, all of these cases all over the country are, are arising. And then you get the Supreme Court decision that says, sort of, you can't remove books, sort of, uh, you know, you would hope at least it would do something to like and the controversy, but in fact, there's just more book banning after this. Uh, and, you know, to this day, we don't really have any real constitutional guidance on this question. And I mean, I think for good reason, if you look at the dissent in PICO, if you look at a lot of these other federal cases um, at the appellate level that never make it to the Supreme Court in the 1970s, you know, the judges there make, I think, a very good point, which is that if we are going to say that nobody can remove a book for any reason, because every reason is potentially suspect and political, then every book is going to have to go to a court to be reviewed. Uh, and it's an impossible imposition of the judiciary to try to determine what should be shelved at every public school's library in the United States. Right. Uh, and so we're going to have to admit that, you know, moral standards are reasonable standards. And if, you know, the, the 
the way that school governance is structured, we give school boards this kind of power to determine the curricula or have the final say in the curriculum, have the final say um, over books and, and materials. And until we change the structure of school governance, we're going to have to defer to these school boards. So that question does, that goes back to your question, which I found really fascinating. It, adults ultimately are making the decision about what kids read, whether it's in their school library, whether it's in their classroom and curriculum. Adults are ultimately making that decision. Your question was, well, which adult legitimately has the final say? And you've laid out three possibilities. One is the school administration, which I guess would include librarians. The other is school boards. And the third would be parents. Tackle that question for us. Which adult yeah, so I has think, the final say? Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the difficulties we see now, which is the conflation of school boards and parents who are not really the same entity. Right. So and a lot of the critics of book banning, uh, you know, will say, well, one parent doesn't have the right to decide for my kid what my kid should be able to read. Right. They can't take the book out of the school library for every kid in the school just because they don't want their kids to read the book. Well, that's correct. Yes. Like one parent doesn't have that power. Um, and one of the interesting things about the 1970s cases is that they all involve school boards. It's the school boards that are removing the books. And that's still the case in a lot of the cases that we see today. So there was a case, um, I think, a couple of years ago at this point um, in Tennessee about removing Mouse, the sort of graphic novel about the Holocaust. Uh, and that was a school board that decided to remove it. And, you know, you get all these people who are up in arms and how could you, you know, you people are censors and you people are fascists, but like they have a democratic authority to remove that book. And if you're not happy with it, you can move to this town in Tennessee and vote in a different school board uh, and they will put the book back. Uh, but, you know, people don't want to do that. They kind of want to have this power at large uh, over the school system. So that's, I think, a very legitimate form of school oversight. Um, and I think that is, in fact, the legitimate form in our current system of school oversight, that if the school board, you know, removes reading material and makes a reasonable case for it, you know, you can't make a partisan case for it, you can't make a religious case for it, but both partisan and religious arguments are easily subsumed into moral arguments, frankly. Uh, you know, you make a case for it and it's you have this power. And if the, the citizens don't like it, if the community opposes it, they can vote you out in the next election and vote in a different school board that's going to put those books back or have a different view of curricular um, and library selection. It's a different thing for individual parents to oppose books. Uh, and impose that opposition on the school. That's not actually democratic. I mean, the school is a community institution and it's not something that is controlled by one family or even one very organized but small group of families. Uh, and so I think there is a, is a sort of pricklier situation. Um, and um, the you know, in the 1970s, this wasn't really happening. But at the same time, you could say in the 1970s, people are a lot more trapped in the school districts that they're in. Like, we don't really have legal homeschooling. We don't right. have full choice. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there's private schools, but, you know, you have to be able to afford that. And today in 2023, there's just many more options for families who are dissatisfied in, at the individual level with the way their public school is run, um, which I think makes it even less legitimate for individual families to be um, engaged in this kind of, you know, book removal, but rarely does that kind of book removal go anywhere um, because well, districts yeah, understand their question. liability. I was going to ask you that. Before we continue with our conversation, I think it's important to take a moment and tell you about our undergraduate honors program in the liberal arts here at Ashland University. 
Hi, I'm Rich Police, Associate Director of Student Programs at the Ashbrook Center. The Ashbrook Scholar Program is an honors program located at Ashland University for undergraduate students with an interest in politics, history, and economics. Modeled after a classical liberal education, you will read the great texts, not textbooks. Your classes will be conversations, not lectures. Conversations with other students, with your professors, and with great thinkers and statesmen from throughout human history. If you or a young person you know are passionate about life's important questions, if you want an education that emphasizes discovery, if you value liberal education and the principles of freedom it upholds, then this is the place for you. To learn more, visit us online at ashbrookscholar.org. I was going to ask you that question, sort of if you look at when books are removed by school boards, is it often in 2023, is it because of a, now you said this is not permitted, I guess, to happen, but is it because of a political point of view uh, in the book or a religious point of view? Is it because of obscenity or sexual material? What, yeah, is, I mean, the difficulty is, that, is like, what is, is the dividing language line? like Mark no, Twain books? What's what, what the dividing it? line between a religious objection, a political objection and a moral objection? Right. And so this is what I, these early courts, I mean, there are a couple of cases, really well written, well decided cases in the 1970s. One is called um, President's Council, uh, which comes out of New York. And then the, the dissent in Pico is very good. And then there's another case that comes out of Indiana, Zykon, Zykon v. Warsaw, I think in 76, um, in which the, the majority decision is written to sort of understands this difficulty, right? That like, it's, it seems easy to say, well, you can't impose a political viewpoint on students, but what's the difference between, you know, saying, I think this book is politically offensive because it has graphic images of sex or something like that, to my saying, I think it's morally offensive for that reason, and my saying it's also religiously offensive for that reason, right? I mean, it offends my political, religious, and moral sensibilities, like the same thing easily does that. Um, and so, and especially in the particular ways that, you know, or the particular kinds of things that people find offensive about books, which largely is like excessive sexuality um, and, uh, you know, like offensive language. Um, and, you know, there's not that many books that are purely politically offensive without these other elements too. Um, and so it's very difficult to disentangle those things. And what those, what these earlier cases did is say like, we can't, you know, we can't disentangle these things. So we have to defer to the, to the school board. And if this is really out of step with the community's position on these questions, then they will lose their seats because these are electoral positions, right? I mean, this is sort of following a little bit from the precedent in Miller v. California about pornography. Like, well, what is porn or, you know, what is offensive speech? It's like whatever the community standards consider to be indecent is indecent. Right. And the community standards are expressed through the school board. And if the school board acts in a way that is really out of step with community standards, they will cease to be the school board. They will be replaced. So where are we seeing book removals to the extent we're seeing them in 2023? Are we seeing them in particular locales? And I'm thinking that, for example, and maybe this is an inaccurate, historically inaccurate caricature, but I would typically think sort of you mentioned the 1930s. Um, book removal was done by the right against leftist ideas. For example, you mentioned communism. Um, book removal was done by the right against uh, sexualized materials, let's say in the 70s, 60s and 70s. Is it still a phenomenon uh, associated with one part of the political spectrum or is it across the political spectrum now? 
Yeah, I mean, I think school book removal is still largely associated with the right. And that dynamic is very much established in the 1970s. And that's why I was very interested in the 1970s as kind of the moment in which all this begins, because the same political dynamic continues to sort of prevail. And part of this has to do with who are the selectors and what are they selecting. Um, and so I think it's easier to say like, oh, well, conservatives are just like reactionaries and they don't like change and they don't like progress. And that's why they're opposed to all these books. But you also have to think about, well, what are the politics of the educators and the writers of these books? Um, and so that's part of what my article looks at is, you know, in the 1970s, you get the beginning of this young adult fiction, which is like this new genre, which is very consciously devised almost to attract this kind of opposition from parents. Um, it's a kind of anti-parent genre in a certain way, because the argument of it is that what we're going to do, we young adult writers like Judy Bloom, um, Richard Peck, uh, those are sort of the earlier writers. I mean, young adult still exists. It's like a much bigger genre now. Um, but at the time it was sort of smaller and it was, the idea was we were going to, I mean, I'm trying to think of who else to name to give some kind of historical basis for this. Robert Cormier is another example, the chocolate war. Um, I don't know if you can think of any. or uh, if any. Judy Bloom, I think will be familiar to a lot yeah, of our Judy, I mean, Judy Bloom is like, you know, now she's got her movie, so she's on the front page of every publication. Um, but yeah, she was very much the kind of avatar of young adult literature and also the avatar of book banning. And these things went together for a reason, which was that like she set out very consciously to write books that were going to tell tell it like it is to adolescents, right, about puberty, about sexuality, about eating disorders, about, you know, uh, violence, the things that like their parents, or at least her assumption was, their parents didn't want to tell them. Their parents are too reticent. Uh, and so she was going to reveal these truths and expose them to these truths, which they really wanted to know about and they really needed to know about for developmental reasons. And in this way, she was going to be kind of hero to adolescents um, and, you know, in, in setting herself up this way, she very explicitly set herself up as like a kind of opponent of parents. Um, and so then these books are shelved in the library. They start to actually be included in school curricula um, a little bit. And the, the parents are opposed. But like, of course they are. The whole genre is designed to incur this kind of opposition from parents, to sort of go against parents, to treat parents as like unwilling to really tell their children the truth about things, you know, withholding important information from, you know, sort of naive. Um, and, you know, the it's the children's book author, the young adult book author, who is like their real friend, who's really going to tell them how things are. And so if you think about the, the authority dynamics of the writer and reader relationship that's being designed by young adult literature. Like, it's very clear why you're going to end up with these conservative looking parents who are like opposed to these books, because that's exactly what they're designed to create. And I mean, even today, you see a little bit of this effect, which is that, you know, Judy Bloom kind of her career was really helped by being multiply banned that kind of made her into a celebrity and she became uh, the yeah. celebrity writer who is banned. And, you know, the, the field was a little less crowded of young adult and children's literature in the 1970s already like quite saturated, but you know, today is even more saturated. And if you want to stand out and make a name for yourself, like the best thing you can do is get banned because if you get banned, then like the New York times and the Atlantic and all these publications, the Washington post are going to be like this great hero of free speech. You know, people are trying to shut her down, but she's here to tell us the truth. So it's a great thing for your career to get banned. Um, and it's exactly that kind of oppositional authority dynamic, which makes parents, you know, it's like programmed to make parents respond, right. To make them opposed to this kind of, to these kinds of books and educators, 
took up young adult literature and were very much sort of saw themselves as the evangelizers for young adult literature um, and took the side of these writers. And they too politically, in the 1970s, the sort of average educator was probably closer to the district in which he or she worked politically than they are today. Today, there's more of a divide, I think, between the politics of professional educators and many of the communities that they serve. Um, and so you see these conflicts often in what we would call purple districts, um, because so Loudoun County in Virginia, which during COVID had like this kind of ongoing conflict over all kinds of things to do with school governance um, and the school board, not just book banning, but also book banning was part of it, you know, is a perfect example of the kind of place that generates these sorts of conflicts because you know, you have on the one hand, very liberal progressive places like, you know, San Francisco or Cambridge, Massachusetts, or like Evanston, Illinois, where everybody's sort of on the same page. The school is progressive and the parents are progressive. And so they will just shelve all these books and everybody will be happy and there will be no controversy. And then on the other hand, you have some very deep red places where, you know, especially rural places, rural Texas, um, you know, in, in the deep south, where also people are pretty much on the same deep red page. Uh, the school district and the parents. And so they just will not shelve this stuff uh, in the first place and nobody will be upset to see it not there. And so they will just continue harmoniously. And the places where you really see conflict are places like Loudoun County, which is like, you know, you just recently was a rural area outside of DC, but has become rapidly suburbanized. And so you get people moving in from the DC area and you have some people who are still there from the pre-suburbanization period and you have a real conflict of worldviews. Um, and that's where you get a school district that is like more progressive than the constituency. And that's where you get these conflicts today. So um, is it a phenomenon? You said that today, even still in 2023, removing books from uh, school libraries or school curricula is primarily still done because of pressure from conservatives. Is there any countervailing pressure from liberals or the left in removing books? Um. So it's interesting because there are ways in the 1970s, you also saw the beginnings of this, which was the kind of we want to remove books that are racist, right? We want to remove books that depict women in a negative light um, a little bit at the margins, but that's not the predominant um, pressure. And the reason that you don't see more of a kind of um, equilibrium, right, where the left has its targets and the right has its targets and they're just like equally trying to remove the things that they don't like is because of the, the composition of the industries that make the books and of the education industry. Um, and there's actually a really wonderful essay by Alan Levinovitz. It was like, it's I think at least 10 years old by now in the millions um, about the liberal dilemma of book censorship. And so he's a liberal, he's against book censorship. I think he's a professor um, in Virginia. And he, he has a kind of interesting, he, he makes a semi-hypothetical scenario where he says like, look, I'm obviously like, I'm opposed to book banning, free speech is really important, et cetera, et cetera. But like, here's a children's book. And he like shows, there's like illustrations of this book, which is this, this um, sort of like lyrical account of a fetus in the womb and how it can like feel its mother's heartbeat and how it feels so attached to its mother and how it's so like in love with its mother and then it comes out and the mother loves it so much and they're so tied together. And it's like a very nice picture book. Um, and he says like, would I shelve this? Right? And he says, I would feel very uncomfortable shelving this book in a library because it's obviously very pro-life. 
And it has a kind of political undercurrent that's like hard, you know, obviously a four-year-old or whoever's reading this picture book like doesn't understand the politics of it, but it's very clear that it has this kind of message uh, that even a four-year-old can sort of understand. And I'm not sure what I would do with a book. Like this is a very nicely written, well-produced children's book. Like on the one hand, it's high quality. It's not like propaganda, but on the other hand, like I, super comfortable with this book. And one of the points that he makes is like, interestingly, the publishing industry does not publish too many books like that. Uh, so we don't really have a problem because most books that mainstream publishers put out are much more in keeping with a kind of center left view uh, insofar as they have any political agenda. I mean, obviously a lot of them are just about like animals, um, but insofar as they have any political view, that view is much more palatable to the left than to the right. And that's why you don't really have as much of a problem with the demand to censor or ban books for racism or sexism, because now those books are mainly just old books. And the question is, like, what, what came up with Roald Dahl a couple months ago? Like, should we just change all the words in them so that they're, you know, they, they pass muster with whatever current, uh, you know, language standards we happen to have? Uh, and that's a different question, obviously, yeah. involving different legal issues than banning books from school libraries or removing them from school. Well, what do you make of that controversy, and particularly if we're connected to schools? So Roald Dahl is undoubtedly on the shelves in many, many, many school libraries and might even be in curricula for some oh, yeah. Um yeah. The, the, There was a blowback for sure, right, against that. Um, not only by what you'd call conservatives, but what you might, I would call old fashioned liberals. Uh, yeah. The Salman Rushdie's of the world. Yeah. Uh, what do you make of that controversy and how it fits into your argument? So I think that's the mode in which the left censors, right? I mean, if you're trying to look for a kind of equivalence between the way that conservatives want to censor school materials, and then you say, well, certainly like the other side also has an agenda. So how does it enact its agenda? That's the way that it censors, right? Of course, they would not say that censorship. It's like alteration or whatever, sensitivity reading. But like that's, you know, it, it, if you're going to call removing a school library book censorship, then this is clearly a version of censorship too. Um, and I think that, you know, the Roald Dahl case um, maybe consider the Dr. Seuss case. Dr. Seuss had like very explicitly racist images and there was not so much opposition on the left to taking those books out of libraries. And, and in fact, ceasing their publication, which is what the, the uh, state of Dr. Seuss did. Uh, so you might say that's like old fashioned censorship, right? That's like, we're not even gonna publish this book anymore, right? But it's a free market and they own the rights to the book. And if they don't want to publish the book anymore, like who are, you know, it's not like the state is requiring them to stop publishing it. They're making a voluntary choice. Uh, so I think Roald Dahl was able to kind of engender some sympathy because his offensiveness was mostly that he, you know, describes adults in a really horrible way because he hates them. Um, <laughs> but everybody remembers reading those books and delighting in his hatred of adults. And it's not like overtly racist. Um, or at least mostly not. And so I think he kind of skated by. He was like on, he was, you know, really like walking a fine line there. He didn't, he didn't know it because he's dead, but that's the truth. Whereas Dr. Seuss didn't make the cut. Um, and I mean, you can go back even further, you know, R Rudyard Kipling, like is, you know, not taught in schools anymore. Uh, and right. yeah, that's right. 
uh, I don't know who else. I mean, I, I don't. You would have to look at whether. Well, I mean, I think of the controversies over Mark Twain and some of the yeah. language. Well, words. Huck Finn. So Huck Finn has just been getting it for, I mean, really sixty years already. Like it's quite impressive how long the Huck Finn has been controversial. Um, and I think you know he survived because the obvious message of the book is not racist uh, and is not pro-Southern. And I think you would have to be a real moron not to see that. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, perennially challenged because it uses the N-word and things like that. Um, so yeah, I would say that's sort of the left's version, right? But it's much less prominent because it happens at the level of of the publisher. It doesn't even get to the level of the school, right? Schools will voluntarily remove these things. They will simply not select, right, the kinds of books that would generate the ire of the left, and I mean the left kind of broadly, I don't mean like some kind of extreme left, right? But just like generally sexist, racist sorts of representations, right? Librarians will just not purchase books like that. And so you will never have a controversy over removing them. And in the few cases where you do, like with Huck Finn, um, the perennial, I mean, it's just the same controversy over and over and over, right? Oh, this uses the N-word. Okay, but this is like a really important 19th century, like anti-slavery book. Uh, okay, well, what, you know, what are we going to do about it? So, um, but, you know, very few other examples beyond that, right? Be precisely because like these books don't get published. These books don't get shelved. These books don't get sold. So what does the future hold for controversies of book selection and book removal in schools? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I think I think the courts will probably take this question up again. Um, I mean, PICO is an extremely unsatisfying decision. Uh, and especially as it's like, you know, in Florida, where it's starting to become much more a state legislative priority to look into what schools are doing, it's going to be in the courts very rapidly. Um, and I mean, it's very problematic for states to start engaging in this because it doesn't undermine the local control of schools in a way where you're no longer really representing a community. You know, it's hard to make the case that I think it's very easy to make the case that a conservative community has the right to determine, you know, what kinds of books are going to be in its school library. And if it doesn't like certain books because they're they're too, you know, <clears throat> they're too offensive, they're too sexualized they're too whatever that another community more progressive would accept, that's their prerogative. And you don't have to live in the conservative community if you don't like those standards, but they have a right to those standards. And as long as they go through a democratic process to enact them, then that's fine. Once you start to do these things at a state level, you take away those local prerogatives and you know, then the liberal or progressive community doesn't have a say anymore. And I think they have a legitimate grievance that they're losing their local control of their schools and they wanna have this progressive stuff on the shelves and they have as much right to it as the conservative district has a right to remove it. Um, and so I think that's gonna be very controversial and will very rapidly find its way into the courts. Um, and so we, we, I think what's gonna happen in the near future is we're gonna get another at least federal court decision, if not Supreme Court decision um, on the question of school book removal. Um, and I mean, beyond that, you know, one of the, the great shifts from the 1970s to the present has just been like the extreme expansion of school choice and just school options for families. And that like, you know, doesn't change the dynamics within public schools, but what it does is it takes way more people out of the public schools so that they're just not involved in these kinds of contests at all. And they're, you know, <clears throat> in educational environments that are more, you know, thematically determined. Like if you're in a classical school, you know, the books that are gonna be in your school are more thematically determined. Uh, and at the same time, like 
there's the internet and you can like find all this stuff that, you know, even when I was a kid, like the internet started when I was in the sixth grade or AOL started, right? So before that, like you had what you had uh, around you physically and now that's not the case anymore. So I think these are, I mean, I think these changes give a lot in a sense, more credence to the school boards that want to remove books, right? Because they can say like, look, we're really not censoring anything. Fascinating. Well, that's something for us to look forward to. Rita, thank you for a fascinating conversation. Um, this is going to be an issue that will be on people's radar for a number of years to come. I appreciate you giving us your insight into it. Thanks for joining yeah, us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.